Welcome to Read By, where today's finest authors read what matters to them, from their homes to yours. In this episode, Leslie Jameson reads two essays by Brian Doyle. To learn more from Jameson about her choice, check out the episode description. And now, Read By, Leslie Jameson. Hi, this is Leslie Jameson, and I'm going to read two short essays by Brian Doyle. The first one is called Joyous Volidaris, and the second is called His Last Game. This is Joyous Volidaris. Consider the hummingbird for a long moment. A hummingbird's heart beats ten times a second. A hummingbird's heart is the size of a pencil eraser. A hummingbird's heart is a lot of the hummingbird. Joyous, Volodorus, flying jewels. The first white explorers in the Americas called them, and the white men had never seen such creatures, for hummingbirds came into the world only in the Americas, nowhere else in the universe. More than 300 species of them, whirring and zooming and nectaring in hummer time zones nine times removed from ours their hearts hammering faster than we could clearly hear if we pressed our elephantine ears to their infinitesimal chests. Each one visits a thousand flowers a day. They can dive at 60 miles an hour. They can fly backward. They can fly more than 500 miles without pausing to rest. But when they rest, they come close to death. On frigid nights or when they are starving, they retreat into torpor, their metabolic rate slowing to a fifteenth of their normal sleep rate, their hearts sludging nearly to a halt, barely beating, and if they are not soon warmed, if they do not soon find that which is sweet, their hearts grow cold and they cease to be. Consider for a moment those hummingbirds who did not open their eyes again today, this very day in the Americas, bearded helmet crests and booted racket tails, violet-tailed sylphs and violet-capped wood nymphs, crimson topazes and purple-crowned fairies, red-tailed comets and amethyst wood stars, rainbow-bearded thornbills and glittering-bellied emeralds, velvet-purple coronets and golden-bellied star frontlets, fiery-tailed all-bills and Andean hill stars, Spatula tails and puff legs, each the most amazing thing you have never seen. Each thunderous wild heart the size of an infant's fingernail. Each mad heart silent, a brilliant music stilled. Hummingbirds, like all flying birds but more so, have incredible, enormous, immense, ferocious metabolisms. To drive those metabolisms, they have race car hearts that eat oxygen at an eye-popping rate. Their hearts are built of thinner, leaner fibers than ours. Their arteries are stiffer and more taut. They have more mitochondria in their heart muscles, anything to gulp more oxygen. Their hearts are stripped to the skin for the war against gravity and inertia, the mad search for food, the insane idea of flight. 
The price of their ambition is a life closer to death. They suffer more heart attacks and aneurysms and ruptures than any other living creature. It's expensive to fly. You burn out. You fry the machine. You melt the engine. Every creature on earth has approximately 2 billion heartbeats to spend in a lifetime. You can spend them slowly, like a tortoise, and live to be 200 years old. Or you can spend them fast, like a hummingbird, and live to be two years old. The biggest heart in the world is inside the blue whale. It weighs more than seven tons. It's as big as a room. It is a small room with four chambers. A child could walk around in it, head high, bending only to step through the valves. The valves are as big as the swinging doors in a saloon. This house of a heart drives a creature a hundred feet long. When this creature is born, it is 20 feet long and weighs four tons. It is way bigger than your car. It drinks a hundred gallons of milk from its mama every day and gains 200 pounds a day. And when it is seven or eight years old, it endures an unimaginable puberty. And then it essentially disappears from human ken. For next to nothing is known of the mating habits, travel patterns, diet, social life, language, social structure, diseases, spirituality, war stories, despairs, and arts of the blue whale. There are perhaps 10,000 blue whales in the world, living in every ocean on earth, and of the largest animal who ever lived, we know nearly nothing. But we know this. The animals with the largest hearts in the world generally travel in pairs, and their penetrating, moaning cries, their piercing, yearning tongue, can be heard underwater for miles and miles. Mammals and birds have hearts with four chambers. Reptiles and turtles have hearts with three chambers. Fish have hearts with two chambers. Insects and mollusks have hearts with one chamber. Worms have hearts with one chamber, although they may have as many as 11 single-chambered hearts. Unicellular bacteria have no hearts at all, but even they have fluid eternally in motion, washing from one side of the cell to the other, swirling and whirling. No living being is without interior liquid motion. We all churn inside. So much held in a heart in a lifetime. So much held in a heart in a day, an hour, a moment. We are utterly open with no one in the end, not mother and father, not wife or husband, not lover, not child, not friend. We open windows to each, but we live alone in the house of the heart. Perhaps we must, perhaps we could not bear to be so naked for fear of a constantly harrowed heart. When young, we think there will come one person who will savor and sustain us always. When we are older, we know this is the dream of a child, that all hearts finally are bruised and scarred, scored and torn, repaired by time and will, patched by force of character, yet fragile and rickety forevermore. No matter how ferocious the defense and how many bricks you bring to the wall, you can brick up your heart as stout and tight and hard and cold and impregnable as you possibly can, and down it comes in an instant. 
felled by a woman's second glance, a child's apple breath, the shatter of glass in the road, the words, I have something to tell you, a cat with a broken spine dragging itself into the forest to die, the brush of your mother's papery ancient hand in the thicket of your hair, the memory of your father's voice early in the morning, echoing from the kitchen where he is making pancakes for his children. And this is his last game. We were supposed to be driving to the pharmacy for his prescriptions, but he said, just drive around for a while. My prescriptions aren't going anywhere without me, so we just drove around. We drove around the edges of the college where he had worked, and we saw a blue heron in a field of stubble, which is not something you see every day, and we stopped for a while to see if the heron was fishing for mice or snakes, on which we bet a dollar, me taking mice and him taking snakes. But the heron glared at us and refused to work under scrutiny, so we drove on. We drove through the arboretum, checking on the groves of ash and oak and willow trees, which were still where they were last time we checked. And then we checked on the wood duck boxes in the pond, which still seemed sturdy and did not feature ravenous weasels that we noticed. And then we saw a kestrel hanging in the crisp air like a tiny helicopter. But as soon as we bet mouse or snake, the kestrel vanished. Probably for religious reasons, said my brother. Probably a lot of kestrels are adamant that gambling is immoral. But we are just not as informed as we should be about kestrels. We drove deeper into the city and I asked him why we were driving in this direction. And he said, I am looking for something that when I see it, you will know what I am looking for, which made me grin because he knew and I knew that I would indeed know because we have been brothers for 50 years and brothers have many languages, some of which are physical, like broken noses and fingers and teeth and punching each other when you want to say, I love you, but don't know how to say that right. And some of them are laughter and some of them are roaring and spitting and some of them are weeping in the bathroom and some of them we don't have words for yet. By now, it was almost evening and just as I turned on the car's running lights, I saw what it was he was looking for, which was a basketball game in a park. I laughed and he laughed and I parked the car. There were six guys on the court and to their credit, they were playing full court. Five of the guys looked to be in their 20s and they were fit and muscled and one of them wore a pork pie hat. The sixth guy was much older, but he was that kind of older ball player who is comfortable with his age and he knew where to be and what not to try. We watched for a while and didn't say anything, but both of us noticed that one of the young guys was not as good as he thought he was, and one was better than he knew he was, and one was flashy but essentially useless, and the guy with the pork pie hat was a worker, setting picks, boxing out, whipping outlet passes, banging the boards not only on defense but on offense, which is much harder. The fifth young guy was one of those guys who ran up and down yelling and waving for the ball, which he never got. This guy was supposed to be covering the older guy, but he didn't bother, and the older guy gently made him pay for his inattention, scoring occasionally on backdoor cuts and shots from the corners on which he was so alone he could have opened a circus and sold tickets, as my brother said. 
The older man grew visibly weary as we watched, and my brother said, he's got one last bucket in him. And I said, I bet a dollar it's a shot from the corner. And my brother said, no, he doesn't even have the gas for that. He'll snake the kid somehow. You watch. And just then, the older man, who was bent over holding the hems of his shorts like he was exhausted, suddenly cut to the basket, caught a bounce pass, and scored. And the game ended, maybe because the park lights didn't go on even though the street light did. On the way home, my brother and I passed the heron in the field of stubble again, and the heron stopped work again and glared at us until we turned the corner. That is one withering glare, said my brother. That's a ball player glare if I ever saw one. That's the glare a guy gives another guy when the guy you were supposed to be covering scores on a backdoor cut and you thought your guy was ancient and near death, but it turns out he snaked you good and you were an idiot. I know that glare. You owe me a dollar. We better go get my prescriptions. They are not going to do any good, but we better get them anyway so they don't go to waste. One less thing for my family to do afterward. That game was good, but the heron was even better. I think the prescriptions are pointless, but we already paid for them, so we might as well get them. They'll just get thrown out if we don't pick them up. That was a good last game, though. I'll remember the old guy, sure, but the guy, the kid with the hat banging the boards, that was cool. You hardly ever see a guy with a pork pie hat hammering the boards. There's so much to love, my brother added. All the little things. Remember shooting baskets at night, and the only way you could tell if the shot went in was the sound of the net. Remember the time we cut the fingertips off our gloves so we could shoot on icy days and dad was so angry he lost his voice and he was supposed to give a speech and had to gargle and mom laughed so hard we thought she was going to pee? Remember that? I remember that. What happens to what I remember? You remember it for me, okay? You remember the way that heron glared at us like he would kick our ass except he was working. And you remember that old man snaking that kid. Stupid kid, you could say, but that's the obvious thing. The beautiful thing is the little thing that the old guy knew full well he wasn't going to cut around picks and drift out into the corner again. That would burn his last gallon of gas, not to mention he'd have to hoist up a shot from way out there, so he snakes the kid beautiful. He knows the kid thinks he's old, and the guy with the hat sees him cut and gets him the ball on a dime. That's a beautiful thing because it's little, and we saw and we knew what it meant. You remember that for me. You owe me a dollar. Nine Two Wise Read By is produced and commissioned by New York's Nine Two Y Underberg Poetry Center a home for live readings and literature for over 80 years. To invite more authors into your home, subscribe to 92Wise Read By wherever you download podcasts. If you're able, please visit 92y.org slash help now to donate to support 92Y and our new digital programming. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Find more great recordings at 92y.org slash read by.